0: My name is Fiona Zeiger, and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. Since 2019, I was involved in a research project exploring perceptions and imaginaries of Europe, how these came about, how they circulated, and what role they played in migration decisions. As the project comes to a close, I am discussing some of the findings with my colleagues Diotima Bertel, Sarah Carrasco-Granger, Elizabeth Cassinis, and Alaji Jinkan. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on the Migration Podcast. May I start with you, Tima, and ask you to give us a brief introduction of the Perceptions project. So, Perceptions
1: is a research and innovation project that was funded by the European Commission. The aim of the project is to understand how migrants, people who consider migrating, perceive Europe, and we want to understand how this influences migration. So, for this reason... We conducted desk based and empirical research in the form of uh, field work with migrants and practitioners who work with migrants. And we also analyzed mass media and social media. Uh, and what we did in the project is we used these research insights to create, for example, creative materials and, and different approaches to change narratives and support practitioners
0: in the everyday work. Sarah, I know that you've been very involved in the data collection, so in the analysis of data collected with uh, different stakeholders, especially the interviews and the focus group discussions as well. So I'm wondering, um, how is Europe perceived by uh, persons considering migration and people who have migrated to Europe?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the first thing to consider when answering this question is that there are multiple experiences and um, we shouldn't generalize on the way Europe is perceived. On the one hand, we have asylum seekers who many times have mentioned that they don't think about Europe or they didn't have a chance to think about Europe before arriving to the continent because they were mostly uh, focusing on getting away from the realities that they were facing in the countries that they were living in. In this sense, Europe uh, several times wasn't the first desired destination of the asylum seekers that participated in the research. Also, in more general terms, we could say that Migrating to Europe is usually associated with the idea that um, the opportunities and the conditions in the continent will bring a sense of uh, safety, security, and economic possibilities that are comparatively better to other um, options that uh, migrants may
0: may have. Mm-hmm. And Maybe I could also ask Elizabeth to chip in a little bit because um, Elizabeth is working for Caritas in Cyprus. Um, so you're a practitioner and you work with a lot of people on the ground, face to face every day. Does this correspond to what you also find in your everyday work, or are there differences, perhaps, in Cyprus in particular?
3: I think. It, you know, everyone it's true that what Sarah said about not generalizing from the experience, um, what we find is that it's as much information that is out there, it's imperfect. and people's perceptions, um, you know everyone is making a decision about uprooting themselves or moving from their circumstances um, based on their own perspective. And it's a combination of the push and the pull factors. And I think the importance of the perceptions and what people think Europe is or isn't um, is based on on how on sort of their calculus of what's pushing them from where they are and what in, it, it, it is actually attractive and what's pulling them. And so people, I, I think it is hard to generalize. Um, and I think it, it's, a, it's a very complicated um, balance for each individual person. But our experience in Cyprus is that many people don't, they know they're coming towards Europe or that's their hope. They're not really sure what they're going to find there. and. Um, Sometimes they're even um, as ill-informed as where they are in Europe, that they begin their journey thinking they're going to end up in a different part, and then they end up in Cyprus, in, in our case, they end up in Cyprus, which is not where they thought they were.
0: Perhaps I could ask the next question to Alagi, who has been very much involved in the fieldwork in Italy. And so, you know, you see, you see we're traveling a little bit around Europe here. <laughs> do these perceptions of Europe matter in migration decisions? And And if so, how do they matter?
4: I really, I really think that perceptions are are, are realities like any other reality. Mm-hmm. It's a psychological reality that we have inside of us that is not less important than the the materialistic realities or that you know we can lift our hand up. So even though they are subjective, these are realities that are capable of pushing people to take migration decisions, especially when. Um, but you look at some of the traditional philosophical systems like the kubuntu where migrations are taking in collective decisions where people trajectories are supported not only by, by kind by money but also by friday prayers in the gambia and senegal so perceptions matter in this sense that you know they have already been intergenerational so they have been passed through you know they have been passed through, and people take it through with them in whatever thing they do. So when you see people, migrants doing sending remittances, and remittances are being used into building things that ha- the government cannot do, it brings perceptions about remittances, and we want to know where these remittances are coming from. And these perceptions are real, are stronger than what. An information campaign might go and, uh, and do at, at a particular time in these temporal moments when these people see what their perceptions have led them to, to to these real issues. For me, perceptions are so real, and it's not about, you know, they are changing nature, but however they change, they reinforce all the perceptions as well. So this is, for me, where we need to see the balance. What perceptions have been reinforced against the reality in Europe and which perceptions have been, are still stronger in the realities of the people who are there, who actually perception matter than our perception of them.
0: Extending on this point of, you know, certain narratives circulating, but also people witnessing the material effects of um, migration or migrant remittances, What's, what are the different uh, sources of information about, let's say, Europe or about the opportunity to migrate more generally? And how reliable are these different sources of information that people tap into?
4: Yeah, I do. In, in, in our research, in our fieldwork, we have come to meet many migrants from, from different migrant groups, from from different countries. But let's stick into Senegambia, the Gambia, Senegal, and Guinea, Bissau, and Mali, which is Western Africa, for example. We have gone from three basic migration phases after the Second World War, you know, when Europeans were coming there, especially in the Francophone countries for reconstruction, and people were recruited with other perceptions, with other narratives after there is some establishment with the European airlines and European embassies were in the Gambia, then the elite people from those countries could come and do their schooling or education or diplomacy has started. So that was when aeroplanes came in, but there were very few embassies and then people cannot travel. The third phase is when people take the ports, the Sahara Desert and the irregular ways Come into Europe. So these perceptions, these channels of information were already there. We have therefore formerly when Europe was coming to recruit. The source of information was institutional and that was the only way. Then, when this passed on, then what came in. There were different institute, uh, in, institutional information, but as well as informal sources of information. The, fa- uh, the families who have wealth already and stayed in France or stayed in Spain or stayed in Italy during those reconstruction period had built up families and were giving information already and had a lot of opportunities to bring in other families. This can be studied in this life cycle of uh, Somalian, but also Gambians, also Senegalese, also, Nigerians, also uh, Malians. So, the sources of information, contemporary recently, have tended to shift on social media, yeah, because the, the these channels are available also in the villages. But the villages still depend on the narrations that are coming through them from those smartphones, but through their own family members, who they trust very much, who they are speaking to, who they because also the, most of those people are are are, are not schooled. So they, 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 they tend to trust what they hear, what they can understand directly and from the people like-minded people, their own people. So therefore you know you can have an institutional uh, uh, information platforms in the Gambia in a population where only 30 people 30 uh, percent uh, read and understand you can hope so in this kind of scenario this is why radio broadcasting that are done where information is li- really not filtered so much or when in, in fact european information campaigns or european reports are the sources of information for gambian journalists or i reports unicef report so you see the reproduction of perceptions and channels of information being produced in europe and being passed to gambian journalists who reproduce and replicate this damn thing so perceptions how they move the channels through which they go are many but i believe that many gambians many senegambians are depending on the traditional sources of information that they think is much more closer to the Ubuntu culture. You believe in the person that you, you see in front of you, who cares, who he, 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 whatever he is doing is for the good of the community, rather than the passing you don't know, rather than the politician. So that's the Ubuntu spirit. I call my village, I am able to convince them more than when a project go there, for example.
3: I, I think I would just, to come up alongside what I was saying, I think, um, the thing that worries us often is that in this calculus, there are actors who could stand to benefit um, from perpetuating misinformation. I mean, this is the thing that we also worry about and that we see is that people are misinformed. Um, partly because information is incomplete or information is skewed, um, this then allows them to make sort of their, their decision. Then their calculus, they'll make a decision that might not be the best one for them, or it, it's flawed in some ways. But it also then leaves them in a situation where they're open for exploitation. And I think that just to, to kind of complement what Ilya was saying, that there is the traditional—you know—people tend um, to believe things from people the sources that they believe. Um, are the most reliable, which often are the ones that they they are the most familiar with, and yet those may be the ones who are um, more likely and more able to influence them for the benefit of someone else. And this is the concern: is that it opens up, um, you know, leaves people unfortunately vulnerable and open to exploitation. Uh
0: huh. Yeah, this brings me to another question that I had, like what is the potential problem with the way information is circulated and consumed is perhaps that the most trusted networks are not always the most reliable ones. And as you said, and this definitely uh, engenders certain challenges. So um, I'm wondering what what challenges have you seen arise from the spread of myths and even disinformation and what can be done about this?
1: I mean, I think first of all, it's important to say that our research has shown quite clearly that migrants they have a somewhat realistic understanding of the journey uh, and what it reads them on it and, the, and all the dangers that are connected to it. I would also like to add that for this reason, we've also not used the word misperception in the project because it's something inherently subjective. We would be uh, quite arrogant of us to assume that uh, migrants have a misperception of Europe. But then there is, of course, misinformation, and there can be a, a whole range of things that can be outdated information about what needs to be done in a country of destination. Uh, it can be misinformation spread by smugglers and traffickers for the own reasons, as Elizabeth has mentioned. And it can also give forms for everybody to unrealistic expectations. And if someone comes to Europe and is confronted with racism and a difficult situation that can backlash of course and it can be to a very problematic situations so that endanger particularly migrants.
2: Yes, on this note I think throughout the fieldwork research, Cyprus was the 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 site or the place where misinformation took on, let's say, the most protagonism, where there were where there were most misinformed uh, migrants arriving to Cyprus and in the terms that Elizabeth has described uh, before. Regarding other results in other countries, it is true that migrants rely mostly on informal sources, so family, friends, and and acquaintances, these being in the country where where they are migrating from and in the diaspora. Yet this is not necessarily problematic in the sense that For migrants that were interviewed in European countries who had already arrived to to Europe, when they were asked what sources they found most reliable or accurate in terms of uh, who informed them best, they they named um, informal sources as the most accurate. So the lack of trust that migrants have in institutional sources connected to the idea that that they believe that institutional sources mainly want to send messages to deter migration altogether may not be the main problem which is in line with what the otima was saying and uh, throughout the interviews again and again um participants pointed to structural problems to uh policy problems to um challenges arising from Migration management, which they highlighted to a, a much higher degree than
0: the threat of um, misinformation. Mm-hmm. And that would be migrant interviewees, so people who migrate, or different stakeholders who highlighted these structural problems, so including practitioners underground.
2: This occurred throughout. The different stakeholder groups so um, these included law enforcement agents, policymakers, makers and support practitioners as well as for migrant interviewees so it was true across all stakeholders
4: I, I just wanted to add two uh, two issues to what just Sarah said I think misinformation here is something that is potentially disinforming someone's uh, intentional giving out half half information, half truth. So when we put this together and we look at the complexity of the, the migrant group, asylum seekers we are talking about, we look at the architecture in which they live, the resources that they have to get to information, we will, you know, almost, you know, Know that uh, they 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 are potentially misinformed every day. From what rights they have in the asylum comes from how the city is to offer them jobs. From if we maintain, if we if we agree, first we have to agree the information is a right for these people to know. I mean, newcomers, for example, when the right to information during trajectories, during these hostile environments, while people, migrants live in this hostile environment, they are potential uh, victims of information, like all of us are potential victims of information. But of course, I will trust the most of the resources that I have, the people, the community I live in. And this is what is also a migration decision making influencer. That if I go to Italy, I'll meet many people like Alagi who will potentially inform you. And I, I can also potentially misinform you because I am using the, the, the reality of my experience in 2014 in, in the Italian asylum camp and reading to you the information I just got, which might be changed the next minute.
3: Um well, I was gonna skip ahead a little bit to segue into the next question about potential problems with the way that information is circulated. I think um oh. one of the biggest challenges that we see is that there's a lag. I mean, we talk always i mean it's not just in case of of perceptions in of migration, but there's a time lag, and this time lag can take on very human um and very sort of uh, tragic dimensions i will use an example in Cyprus unfortunately, um there are many people who find it um in their interest or sort of you know to tell. Uh, particularly women, that if they were to arrive in Europe either pregnant or to get pregnant, for example, with child in Europe that their child would be um, uh, would be a European citizen or would have a right to a passport. This is not true. Um, but you can imagine, but we can immediately see the humanitarian dimensions and what this means Sorry. sort of socially, when this piece of misinformation um kind of takes on a. It, it, because you can't take it back. I mean, that's sort of a decision um, that happens, and it's something that can and does, in our experience, influence someone's decision or at least their expectation of what conditions they will find and what they, um, what their future will look like.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. So to come to the last question, what are your recommendations for change? I think that maybe tackling misinformation is is part
1: of the whole thing, but. The whole focus on information campaigns and finding information is maybe not the way to go because addressing migration as a problem, as in quotation marks via information campaigns, is um, not looking at the root cause of the issue. And if we want to improve the situation for migrants and in the host countries, I think we have to move away from seeing migration as a security problem. And focus on it as a humanitarian issue, focus on improving and changing migration policies. Like Sarah said in the beginning, sometimes people need to get away from a situation that they are in. But if information campaigns are focused on discouraging people from migrating, then they will never trust these sources in any case. So these campaigns are deemed to fail from the start.
4: I, I will just continue adding to what DioT was. I think here is there in some way, you know, the um, uh, in- information campaigns are apparently colonialistic in the sense of how they are designed, who sponsors them, how they are implemented, and how they are evaluated. So for me, I think that an evaluation system that is about efficiency, that is not hypocritical, that is true to the core of what the information campaign wish to do, whatever it is, you know, should be for the evaluation to include the local people and let them be the protagonists from the designing to the implementation to even default racing, let them do it, but let the funds not be spent on the management of, of, of the information campaign and not building a bakery or, or, or a will for the people that you want to you know, stop from moving. I mean, I, I I like giving my example, my mom was cook, going to cook during these project programs in information campaign when they come to my village. Well. It doesn't stop me from coming here, it didn't stop many people coming here, she continued to be poor, she paid my school fees in that situation, I went through many problems and during, due to many a lot of complicated issues, many people like me anyway ended up in Europe through the most painful patterns of migration in this world. What what do we, and then the approach that you go there with that colonialistic mentality after 400 years or whatever you do you want to tell people how they should on their mon- mentality? This does not discourage people. It it, it makes them curious. Is there something in in Europe that they are they are that they want to avoid us from? And then without understanding the Ubuntu philosophy, how this go or even disregarding it, so. This, for me this is the problem. And this approach is colonialistic. It it it, it undermines the, the the local people and it undermines the, the real causes, the real problems that people have. It is not information campaign that can solve those issues.
3: I mean I, I think you know, I, I find that I I believe that migration is a human right. I mean fundamentally it's part of the human condition to seek um better and safer circumstances for ourselves and our children. And so I think we have to kind of from that perspective, and I, I I see and I hear what Ananji's saying, that it it's hard to kind of try and and, and change everything and, and and this idea that you're gonna go in with an information campaign. I wonder if the approach couldn't be one more of mistrusting I guess, is what I would like. You know, if I could somehow have answered some of the questions that we the the, the, the asylum seekers who are here or the, the people who are now in Cyprus seeking um refuge or or asking for international protection or for seeking a better life, if if someone had a, had properly answered some of their questions, or perhaps, as they said, dispelled some of the myths without any judgment. In other words, let them make the decision. I feel that you know some people have their that they have to be it's the fundamental right to make that decision. I just would wish that they could make the decision based on uh, you know a, a more accurate, a balanced perspective, as opposed to the ones that maybe they choose. Because again, we cherry pick. Right. I mean, we also kind of saw through cognitive closure, all of us. So if we, if we think we want to do something and then we, we're going to seek out, especially in a world as compartmentalized um, as our algorithm is now with, with social media. Right. I mean, our our narratives get reinforced. We, we don't necessarily see the alternate. I wish that there was a place that or a way that a platform could allow um, people to kind of actually query and get multiple perspectives and then make a better decision.
0: Thank you very much to uh, Diotima, Sarah, Allergy and Elizabeth for joining me today on the Migration Podcast and for presenting the results of the Perceptions Project and answering my many questions. Thank you. Diotima is researcher at Cineo and the project coordinator of Perceptions. Sarah is research fellow at the University Rey San Carlos. Elizabeth is the director of Caritas Cyprus and Allergy is research fellow at the Department of Psychology at the University of Bologna.